Matthew, Matthew chapter number 11, Matthew chapter number 11 is going to be our text this evening, and we're going to look at verse 1 down through verse 15 uh, here in the ministry of Christ, and we're looking specifically at uh, John the Baptist, and uh, titled the message, uh, Even the Greatest Have Doubted, Even the Greatest Have Doubted, and uh, we're going to look at John the Baptist where he comes to a moment where he has doubt. And uh, doubt's a real thing that we experience and um, many people struggle with. And I pray that as we look at John the Baptist, we'd be encouraged in our own faith uh, with Christ together. Let's read here in verse 1 of Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And they went away, as, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John... And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We think about the subject of doubt. Have we ever struggled with doubt ourselves? I know that I could testify. I've, I've had doubts. Um, I don't think there's probably any Christian who's resisted all doubt. If we're honest, uh, we've doubted in one way or another. Sometimes we may doubt our salvation. Many Christians struggle with that, uh, getting assurance Sometimes we may doubt what God is doing in our life. We may doubt the promises of God. Uh, the reality is we're all human, and uh, doubt is a reality that we're going to have to face and overcome. And one thing we find is that even the greatest of Christians have struggled with doubt at certain points in their life. And that's the case with our text here uh, tonight. We see uh, a great man of God. He's one of the greatest that we read about. In our Bibles, and his name is John the Baptist. Uh, when we hear the name John the Baptist, what do we tend to think of? Well, we think of a, a rugged man. Uh, maybe he's got a wild beard. He's in the wilderness. Uh, he's a man who was dressed in camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey. That's how Scripture describes him. Uh, he was a man who was somewhat rough around the ages, but he had, rough around the edges. Uh, but he had a powerful uh, message of truth. He was a prophet. He baptized people in Israel who had repented, and uh, he's the one who had baptized Jesus in, at the beginning of his ministry. He was a bold and courageous man who preached righteousness. He 
called out the hypocrisy of the religious elites. He called out Herod, the king, for his uh, adultery. Um, We think about this man. He was a man of great faith and courage and boldness. And certainly, as we look at John the Baptist, we could use a lot more uh, people like him who are willing to stand against the current uh, that goes against the word of God. Uh, But what we find with him is that he, he comes to a time in his life where he has doubts. John the Baptist had a doubt about Jesus as to whether he was really the Messiah or not. And when we look at John the Baptist's ministry, we might be what somewhat baffled reading that later on in the Gospels. How could John the Baptist uh, ever ask such a thing? How could he come to a place where he ever asked such a thing and had such doubt? Uh, we tend to think that preachers or even Christians just in general, that we're supposed to have great faith and not doubt at all. But the reality is, is that doubt certainly creeps into our life uh, at times, and we need to be on guard against it. So I want us to see a few things here about John the Baptist, and uh, the bulk of the message will come here in this first point, but uh, I've broken it down here for us just to see what we can glean from this text. Uh, I want you to see John the Baptist, number one, he doubts Jesus' ministry. He doubts Jesus' ministry, or rather his Messiahship. But before we get to his point of doubt, I want to point out firstly, uh, we see his courage. The first thing I want to point out to John is his courage, because he wasn't one who just was always doubting and always wondering and always uh, kind of skittish about uh, things God was doing and what Jesus was doing. Uh, we find firstly that he was a very courageous and a very bold man. And, and the life of John the Baptist and his ministry it would be one of great boldness and his calling that God places upon him really requires that, requires boldness on his part uh, in what he's called to do. Now, his life and ministry are very significant. They're so significant that even his arrival into the world uh, is announced by angels. It's announced by um, Gabriel uh, that he would come into the world and his birth would be miraculous. It wouldn't be Miraculous in the same sense that Jesus' was, coming by way of a virgin, but in the sense that John the Baptist's parents, they were beyond childbearing age. They had been barren. And so for him to come to the world through them as his parents was a miracle. But we see even before he comes into the world in Luke 1.17, I have this reference in your notes, what the angel says about John the Baptist. He says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, here's what we're seeing with John the Baptist that the angel says is going to happen with him. He's going to be like Elijah. I mean, that's, that's, that's quite an identification. He's going to be like Elijah. Uh, he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, we remember... Elijah, what do we know of him? He was a mighty prophet, right? He's one of the most noted prophets of the Old Testament uh, who was bold and very courageous in his ministry. He, he called out the evil of Ahab and Jezebel. We know how wicked they were. He defeated the prophets of Baal uh, there on Mount Carmel. And uh, the Bible tells us that John the Baptist, in his birth announcement, in his ministry, he's going to come in that same spirit and power. Uh, of Elijah in like manner. Now, this birth announcement by the angel Gabriel to Zacharias and Elizabeth came to them in their old age, and we 
kind of maybe ponder what a message this must have been for them to hear that their son, uh, not only that they're going to have a son, but that their son would be like Elijah of old. But even greater than being like Elijah is what John the Baptist is actually going to do. The Bible says he's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He was going to be the chosen one of God that God would use to prepare the minds and hearts of the people for the arrival of the Messiah, the promised one. He would be the forerunner. And so when we see John the Baptist come on the scene, he is doing that very thing. He's preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God and the arrival of the king. And so let's look at this together. Go backwards in Matthew to chapter 3 for a moment and look at verse 1 through 6 just to start out, just to give us background in to John the Baptist and seeing his courage, seeing his boldness, seeing his faith and what God's using him to do. John chapter, excuse me, uh, Matthew 3. Here's where we see it begin. The Bible says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, we can kind of, I guess, imagine and, and picture this scene, uh, seeing a man in camel's hair out in the wilderness. I mean, camel's hair was a, a common, um, common form of clothing, but uh, his appearance here, all right, it evokes images about Elijah being one who is kind of rough and rugged, and, uh, and Elijah was one who was, uh, you know, preparing the way for God's wrath. Uh, who he would, he would bring God's wrath on his people and bring judgment upon his people. Uh, but we see John the Baptist, he's doing something similar here, only for Israel in that day and time. We see his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I'm not one that I think I would pick up a locust and take a bite of it. Uh, I'd have to be pretty hungry uh, to do something of that nature. But locusts and wild honey, they were not an unusual source of food for people living in the desert, all right, especially in that day and time and where they were. Um, the desert locust there was like a large grasshopper, and uh, it's still eaten by a lot of people there who are poor and can't afford to buy a whole lot of food. And uh, there in the Middle East and even in Africa, uh, that's, that's a food that they eat. Uh, but despite this rugged appearance like that of Elijah, we see multitudes coming to him as he preaches and baptizes. I mean, what a scene this is. Now, this is even more significant when we remember that there's been a period of silence up until the announcement of his birth that there was no prophet, there was no uh, divine revelation there for a few hundred years there in Israel. So they're probably all wondering, what, what's God doing? It's often known as the silent years. But then John the Baptist comes preaching the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what they were looking for. That's what they're expecting, preaching the theme of the kingdom of God and, and the Messiah, the king who would come. And so John the Baptist... He's preaching that message very boldly, very courageously, and multitudes of people are coming to him. But then his courage is shown even further in his rebuke of uh, the religious elite of that day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're well aware of who they were, right? 
If you read Matthew chapter 3, continuing where we left off here, look at verse 7. We see, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, that's not the common message that we hear today, right? That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and is going to bless you with all sorts of things as long as you uh, maybe turn to Him or give a little or pray or, you know, all the prosperity gospel we hear today. I mean, this is, this is the message that John gives to them. He, he's not pulling any punches. I mean, his first statement to them is, you all are a brood of vipers. Uh, I mean, that's, that wouldn't fly nowadays, would it? Um, not at all. Uh, that indicates that he, he sees that they were subtle, they were venomous, they were deadly in a spiritual sense. He calls on them to repent of their own religious hypocrisy, and he warns them that the Messiah is coming after him, and the Messiah is mightier than him. So John's making clear, I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. He's very near, um, and he's mightier than I am. And he says that the Messiah would bring judgment on them. He says the axe is already laid to the root. All right? Talking about them in Israel. Uh, and he's going to come and separate the wheat from the chaff. So uh, John the Baptist, like Jesus, he just, he just lets the Pharisees and Sadducees have it. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't try to sugarcoat things. He just preaches the truth without apology. And so we look at John the Baptist and it's very evident that he's bold, he's courageous, he's unashamed, he's, he's a man of great faith. With all that we read here and know of him, would you have ever thought him to be a man of doubt? If we didn't have Matthew 11, would we have ever thought John the Baptist to be a man who would ever come to a point where he doubts Jesus, even questioning whether he is the Messiah? Now, that brings us to number two here, letter B. Second, we see his circumstance. We see his courage, firstly, but now we see his circumstance in our text. John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist had fulfilled his God-given calling. He preached and prepared a people for the coming of the Messiah, the King. He baptized Jesus, which started the ministry of Jesus. And not long after baptizing Jesus, he had an encounter with Herod the Tetrarch, that would set the path of his life towards its end. And I put this reference in your notes here in Luke chapter 3, and verse 18 through 20, and we read this, what takes place here. The Bible says this takes place in context with after, G, after uh, John's ministry. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John the Baptist is 
preaching and calling out one of the leaders of that day, the Roman leaders, Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, because he's committing adultery with his brother's wife. Now, Matthew gives us insight and shows us exactly what John said in Matthew 14, 4. John said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. He was committing adultery with uh, his brother's wife. And that brings us to where we see G, uh, in, in Matthew 11, we see John the Baptist where his present predicament is. In verse 2, what do we read? He's in prison. He's in prison. Now, Josephus reports that John the Baptist was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, at Herod Antipas's fortress palace called Macarius. All right, that's in the Jewish antiquities. And that was a fortress um, built atop a steep hill east of the Dead Sea. It would be in modern-day Jordan uh, today. And so the prisons of that day, understand that they weren't delightful. They didn't have uh, a bed and a pillow and good meals and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of amenities. Prisons were dark. They were dreary. They were really dreadful. They were, they were torture, really. They were very uncomfortable. This would have been very depressing, uh, dark place for John the Baptist to be in. And so we think about John the Baptist for a moment. Imagine his situation, what he's enduring. Do you see how maybe being in that circumstance could discourage him? After all, he is human, right? He is human. He, he's not impenetrable. He has flesh. Uh, we can see very easily how doubt could have entered his mind. And there's a reason, there's a specific reason for that doubt, which I'll get at in a moment. But overall, his life here has been turned upside down, as some would see it. Um, John the Baptist was a man of the desert, free and roaming. Yet now he's confined to a prison. He is a divine mandate to preach to the masses, but he's confined. He's been silenced. He's announced coming judgment, but yet it seems to be slow in arriving. Where is this judgment? Why am I in prison? He's wondering. You see, he, research, he received reports of Jesus' ministry that he could not see the whole picture with his own eyes. And without sight, that is often when many people start to doubt. Uh, many people do not believe based on just hearing. Uh, we think about Thomas, the disciple. You remember him after the resurrection. What well, do you remember what he said? He said, except I see. The other disciples had already seen Jesus, and they told him that he had been risen. But what did Thomas say? Thomas said, except I see the nail prints in his hands and in his, the scars in his side. I'm not going to believe. So he, he, he's basing everything off what he's going to see and not what he's hearing. But here's the reality. Often we ourselves may come to a place similar to that of John the Baptist, but not identical, when we, we may come to a place that is dark, that is dreary, that is almost like a dungeon in our mind where we can't see clearly and we are prone to doubt in those circumstances. We've all probably had circumstances in our life. Maybe it's a trial or maybe you're expecting something from God and He doesn't seem to be fulfilling that or um, something we experience might cause us to doubt because that's what our eyes and hearts are seeing and focusing on. We maybe not see how we're going to come through this, or we may not see exactly what God is doing very clearly. There's an old example of John Wesley, who was talking with a man who was very troubled about and doubting the goodness of God. And this man came to him, they were walking along a road, and he said, I do not know what I shall do with all this worry and trouble. 
And at that moment they were walking, Wesley saw a cow that was looking over a stone wall. And he said to the troubled man, do you know why this cow is looking over the wall? And the man said, no. Wesley said, the cow is looking over the wall because she cannot see through it. And that is what you must do with your wall of trouble, look over it and not try to see through it. And essentially what he's saying is that you need to be looking up instead of this way, right? Uh, Horizontally, trying to look directly at the problem, but look at the God who's over the problem. Not look directly at the circumstance, but look at the God who is providential over the circumstance. You know, Paul wrote this, and it's the principle of the Christian life. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight, right? Um, Often, if we're not careful, we'll begin to lean too much on sight and not live by faith. And we need to be reminded of that. But I think it's interesting how John the Baptist, he's compared to Elijah, not only in his boldness, but they're similar also in their ministry in the realm of discouragement. Uh, Elijah, though he was bold, he was also very discouraged at times. We remember Elijah's response when, when Jezebel put a price on his head after that great victory over the prophets of Baal. What happened with that? Well, we read in, second, in 1 Kings 19.4, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I mean, just hours ago, he's on Mount Carmel and sees fire fall from heaven. Great victory over the prophets of Baal. And now a price is on his head and he's completely opposite. He's discouraged, down, lacking faith, doubtful. Now, what is John the Baptist's response to his circumstance? Look at verse 3 of our text in Matthew 11. Here's his response to his circumstance of being in prison. He says, to go tell Jesus or ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That question is so bewildering, isn't it? Are you really him or are you, should we look for another? I mean, the, the, this is the whole purpose of John the Baptist's life and ministry is centered upon the question that he's asking of Jesus. John the Baptist was meant to prepare people for Jesus and point people to Jesus, and he did that very thing. But now he comes to a moment in his life where he's looking and wondering, are you really the one that I was meant to prepare the people for? You see, the same man had earlier boldly said this, to the people in John 1.29, he boldly said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sin, away the sin of the world. Now, when we look at John the Baptist, what do we see? We see that even the greatest of Christians can doubt. Even the greatest of Christians can doubt. Many circumstances arise in our life that would tempt us to be doubtful. And what would our thoughts be in this circumstance? It's a challenge to us all. Notice with me, letter C, we see thirdly, we see his clarification because this is exactly what John the Baptist needs. He needs some clarity about what's going on, what God's doing, why he's in prison, and how he should be thinking. Now, notice what Jesus said to John's disciples in verse 4. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. He wants John to be reassured of what Jesus is doing as the Messiah. Now, have you ever needed to be reminded of a truth? We all do, right? 
Sometimes I wish I could just download everything in Scripture and keep it in my brain, you know, like a computer, and just instantly access everything I need. But we're human, right? We're not computers. We, we, we forget things, and that's one reason we need to constantly be in our Bible, so we're reminded, uh, living uh, in the Word of God. But we've all needed to be reaffirmed of something in our life. There was a time in my life, not too long after I'd surrendered to preach, where I became very doubtful about whether God had called me to preach. And uh, the reason I had doubted is because I had read some article about what a call to preach is supposed to be, and it was a very legalistic, really unbiblical article. But I was young. You know, I was very mature and, and didn't, didn't really have a solid grounding on that stuff. And I really severely began to doubt my call. I was depressed. I was miserable. I thought I'd made a huge mistake. And uh, I praise God for my mom who talked some sense into me and gave me some clarity uh, about that kind of an article and uh, how God works and calls in our life uh, from Scripture and not from some man's opinion. But sometimes we're like John and we need to be shown something again. Now, Jesus knows where John the Baptist is. He knows what he's experiencing. He knows what he's thinking. And so Jesus is going to give him the clarification he needs to reassure him about his faith in Christ. Now, Jesus does this by pointing out specific works that he's done in his ministry. Now, notice verse 5, because these marks that Jesus mentions and that he's been doing, they are specific marks of the Messiah, of the one who was to come. Notice what he says. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Now, why does he, why does he emphasize these things? Well, specific things would be done by the Messiah. One particular reference here in Isaiah 35, verse 4 through 6, he says, Say to those who have, been, have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now that's just one prophecy among many others that reference the marks of what the Messiah would do. It's all, they're, they're peppered throughout Isaiah. You can find them just by looking at some of your references in your Bible. But the prophecies here specifically point to the Messiah. And Jesus is making clear to John, take note of all these things that are supposed to mark the Messiah. I'm the one doing all these things. I'm literally doing them. I'm giving sight to the blind. Those that couldn't walk, I'm healing them. Those that couldn't talk, I'm giving them speech. Even those who were dead, I'm raising up to life. You know, Jesus even points out how important his works are to the religious of his day, showing their testimony that he's the one, even though they didn't believe it. In John 5, 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. All that Jesus was doing testified that he was of God and he is God, that he's the Messiah. So we think about all these things. Who but the true Messiah could do such things? You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were always backed into a corner because they really had nothing to say. 
They were just so proud in their hearts and blind in their, blind in their hearts, they could, they could never believe on Christ. So what we find here, Jesus is giving clarification to John that these are the marks of the Messiah, and I meet all these marks. It was a wonderful thing because that truly meant that the king had come and the kingdom of God had come. But is this what is supposed to be happening if the kingdom of God truly has come and the king is here? I mean, John the Baptist, like many of Jews of that day, were expecting the kingdom of God to come in somewhat of a different manner. They looked at it in the sense that it would be a political force, that it would be with military might, just like King David, right? They expected uh, the Messiah to come on the scene and free them from Rome's tyranny over them and to establish Israel as the dominant force in the world. That's, that's the kind of kingdom they're looking for. It's a physical, militarily, political type of kingdom. But that's not the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. But they're thinking that. And so John the Baptist kind of has that mindset too. If Jesus is the Messianic king and the kingdom of God has come with his arrival, why am I in prison? Why am I in prison? Why am I suffering this way? That's the thinking here. Their expectation of the kingdom wasn't happening. Jesus has allowed his forerunner to be imprisoned by wicked Herod, evoking John's question whether he is indeed the royal executor of divine justice for which God's suffering people have been longing. You see, before Jesus would reign and execute justice, he first had to die for sin. He had to atone for sin. He had to rise from the dead. Friend, if Jesus had established some political kingdom and sin remains unatoned for, it does no good. And that, that's, one, that's one of the main, I guess, problems in, even in our day. People look for a, 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 a political salvation without a spiritual salvation. I can tell you, just it, it doesn't matter how our nation is, up or down. If you're not saved, you don't have atonement for sin, it doesn't do any good. We're going to die and leave this world, uh, and it, it, it doesn't matter how comfortable we are in this world if we don't know Christ. Uh, so it's, it is only then, after Jesus would be resurrected and ascend to his heavenly throne, that the kingdom of God would permeate the world through gospel victory, through salvation of souls and the transforming of lives, and that in turn would affect uh, the world around us. So even though... Even though John doesn't get this at this point, Jesus is pointing this out. But notice that he points out something to him. It's almost like a soft rebuke, okay? He's, he, Jesus is being compassionate here. In verse 6, what does he say? And blessed is the one who is not offended in me or by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's encouraging John. John, don't get your head down because you're in prison. Keep your head up. Keep your head out. You have fulfilled what God had promised and what you had been called to do. Don't be ashamed, but believe. What you preached is coming to pass. You fulfilled your mission. Now finish faithfully. John was in somewhat of a fog, not understanding his predicament. And often it's exactly when we're in times like these that we don't understand our circumstance that our doubt tends to creep in. But ultimately it is when we uh, come to those times that our faith needs to be firmly settled in the Lord, because if it's not, we will begin to think our own way and lean upon our own thinking, and when we lean upon our own thinking, that is always when doubt will creep into our minds and creep into our hearts. 
Now, this is a wonderful passage. It's one I hold dearly in my heart. In Proverbs 3, and verse 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. What's our natural tendency from this verse? Our natural tendency is the latter half, right? To lean on our own understanding. But the Proverbs author is saying, don't do that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Because our own understanding is flawed. It's flawed. That's just the best way we can put it. And flawed understanding will lead to faithless thinking. John had a time of doubt, but that didn't mean he wasn't a great Christian either. He needed clarification of what God was doing. And this clarification, here's another important point, this clarification to him comes through the Word of God. It comes through the Word of God. Jesus is quoting, all right, what the prophets said in Scripture about the Messiah. And do you know how you and I can have resolution to our own doubts? It's in the Word of God. It's in the Word of God. What does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? Word of God, right? So our faith is ultimately rooted in the assurance and, uh, uh, and sufficiency of Scripture. And so John the Baptist needed that clarification. And for you and I, if we're going to get clarification in our moments of doubt, go to the Bible. Go to the Bible. Pour your heart into the Word of God and, and, and behold what God has said and believe it. Notice with me number two tonight. I told you the bulk of it was in the first, first point there, but I do want to close out the rest of the text and just show you what Jesus brings out about John the Baptist. Jesus honors John the Baptist's ministry. We know, firstly, in our first point, that John the Baptist doubted Jesus' ministry. But notice that John Jesus, on the opposite end, he honors the ministry of John the Baptist. And there's a reason for this. Firstly, is that his service was significant. His service was significant. Jesus, Jesus could have taken this moment to make an example of John the Baptist, just to give him a strong, open rebuke. He had every right to do that. He could have used John the Baptist uh, as an example to teach them, don't be like him, doubting when you're in trouble, doubting when you're in the dungeon. But that's not what he does here. Instead, Jesus defends John and how God has used him for his purposes. Others could have used this incident of doubt to distract from his reputation, but Jesus wants to make clear how important John the Baptist's ministry really was. So we look at verse 7 and verse 9, and look at what he says. And as they went away, John's disciples went back to John to tell him what Jesus said. There's another crowd here still with Jesus, and Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. And asked them this, asks them these questions. What did you go out of the wilderness to see? You who left and went out there in the middle of the Judean wilderness, what did you go out there to see? Were you just gone to see some reed shaking in the wind or some guy with soft clothing? No, he says, you all went out to see a prophet, didn't you? And Jesus is saying here, yea, more than a prophet, more than a prophet. Why does he say this? Because they saw the fulfillment of Scripture concerning the coming Messiah before their very eyes. And so Jesus, he quotes this fulfillment in verse 10. He says, this is he of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for you. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, which says, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek 
will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That is John the Baptist, speaking of the Messiah. The Messiah would come. He's prepared the way for the Lord to come. And that's exactly what he did. So his ministry was significant in a very mighty way. Jesus does not want the doubt of John the Baptist to be what identifies John the Baptist. And that's something for us to remember as well. Because it's our Christian nature to really exalt the sins of others without looking at how God's used them and what God's doing in their life. Someone rightly said this, that the Christian army is kicks their wounded. And there's a lot of truth in that. We ought to be a little bit more compassionate uh, in, in, in seeking to restore our brothers uh, and help them up rather than condemning them, uh, especially if they are repentant. I understand that some Christians go down a way path and uh, there's, there's reproof and rebuke that needs to come from that. Uh, but at the same time, we ought to understand how God might work in someone's life and uh, seek restoration through repentance. But notice, notice something else Jesus brings out here. Not only do we see that his service was significant, we also see his status was special. He has a very special status among those who God has used. And this is a, a statement that somewhat bewilders some and Rightly so, but we look at what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Pause there for a moment. Just think about what Jesus is saying. Among those born of women, there is not arisen young, uh, one greater than John the Baptist. How many great men do we think of and know in Scripture? I mean, we could think of so many, right? Noah, Abraham, Moses. Joshua, David, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Those are all great men that God used in their times. And yet, Jesus says, John the Baptist is greater than all of them. Greater than all of them. Well, comparatively, we see why. John the Baptist was called to do what many in the Old Testament longed to do. The prophets of old... They could only predict by prophecy of the coming Messiah. John the Baptist, John the Baptist was able to physically point people to the Messiah in person. There is such a greater significance upon John the Baptist's ministry in his day and time. Now Calvin rightly said this, John Calvin, in reference to this verse, in a word, this magnificent eulogium is bestowed on John, John the Baptist, that the Jews may observe more attentively the commission which he bore. Jesus wants them to understand how significant John the Baptist was to the plan of God in redemptive history. Now, it was this great man also that we think and look at this. It was this great man that Jesus is talking about that has this moment of doubt in his darkness. This simply reveals the humanity of John the Baptist. He wasn't a perfect man but he still was a Christian mightily used of God, and we ought to consider that for ourselves. We note next what Jesus says. Even though John the Baptist is the greatest of those born among women, Jesus goes on to say in verse 11b, the latter part, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of, greater, uh, kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, this statement is somewhat debated, but I'll give you some insight that I, I thought was good from R.C. Sproul, and there may be other interpretation here that may be viable too. Uh, I wouldn't die on the hill of this. 
but I, I think this makes sense. He states and says, the least in the kingdom of kingdom are more privileged than John because they stand after the cross and resurrection and thus have received the fullness of the Spirit and the revelation of Christ's full ministry in the new age. They participate in what the prophets only saw from a distance. Thus, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John because they have received more revelation than any Old Testament prophet, including John, the greatest prophet of the old age. And you see a connection there in verse 13. Notice that Jesus says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. You see, John the Baptist was the last prophet of the old covenant age. The new covenant was inaugurated or was not inaugurated until the death of Christ on the cross when he solidified it and sealed it with his own blood. And so, therefore, the least person born again on this side of the cross, since the king has accomplished redemption and is exalted on high, has a greater experience of blessedness than John the Baptist knew in his time. So John the Baptist was the greatest of the old covenant, but we have a greater blessedness living under the new covenant in the kingdom than John. So I thought that was a viable explanation as to what Jesus was meaning there. I... There certainly is more that could probably be said about that. But Jesus is pointing out, because he's been preaching the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. Why? Because the king has arrived, right? Jesus said, if I cast out devils by the power of the Spirit, the kingdom of God has come. That's what he did in Matthew chapter 12. And so Paul said in Colossians 1, we've been translated into the kingdom of God through his dear son. It's a marvelous blessing for us to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus continues by showing them that the promise of Elijah, who is to come, is fulfilled in John the Baptist. Look at what he says in verse number um, 14. He says, if you are willing to accept it, he is, John the Baptist, he is Elijah, who is to come. Now, what's he talking about there? He's referencing Malachi 4.5. If you read Malachi 4.5, the prophet, and look at, look at what the last, last scripture is in your Old Testament. The last scripture in your Old Testament before the intertestamental period is a prophecy about Elijah, who is John the Baptist. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And who's the first prophet we read in the New Testament? John the Baptist. You see that continuity that God gives us, showing us how this is all linked together. See, recognizing who John the Baptist was and how God used him shows us how God uses frail, faithless creatures like us. The ultimate truth is this, is that there are no great men or women of God, only weak, faithless women dependent upon a mighty God and men, men and women. We're weak. We're creatures created, frail, subject to sin, and yet God in His mercy and grace uses us, uses us in ways that we don't deserve, ways that we couldn't imagine. Now, Jesus doesn't want us to doubt, obviously. We ought to be faith, full of faith. But sometimes doubt may creep in, especially in circumstances like John's, when you're in darkness, you're in times where you don't understand. But we've got to remember what Jesus told Thomas. We mentioned him earlier. He's often called... Thomas the doubter, or doubting Thomas, we've probably all heard that phrase. 
But here's what Jesus said to him in John 20 and verse 29. Be not faithless, but believing. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. We see a great principle here for us in our Christian life. None of us are immune to doubt. Not even great men like John the Baptist, who's told to be the greatest of old, old covenant men. When you doubt, here's what we can do. Do as John the Baptist did. What did he do? He sought Jesus for an answer. And when you seek Jesus for an answer, which is through the word of God, within the precious pages of Scripture, you'll begin to see your faith renewed and strengthened and solidified because that is where faith is ultimately rooted. It is in the assurance of the word of God.